like to introduce our speaker this evening, Randy Boyagoda. So what I would like to do this evening is read to you a little bit from the beginning of the book, and then I'll speak more generally about Newhouse's life and work and how this biography came about. And then I'll end by reading one more section from the book that, as you'll see, has a kind of rather immediate connection to Washington. And so, from the beginning of Richard John Newhouse, A Life in the Public Square. There was smoke and ash and great singing in the church that night in 1967. The pews were filled with left-wing radicals and their marijuana and cigarettes. They had come over from Manhattan to a broken-down corner of Brooklyn, along with some television cameras and a service of conscience and hope, an event that yielded prayer and protest over the grave injustice of the U.S. war effort in Vietnam. During its signal moment, some 200 young men solemnly walked to the altar bearing their draft cards, which they deposited in a bowl. This was their symbolic and efficacious means of refusing to join the American war machine. Following the service, the cards would be sent on to the Justice Department. The young men walked forward amid much 60s-era atmospherics, but the church was far from silent. The long-haired people on the scored wooden benches were singing with everything they had, but this time they were not running through one of their standard angry protest chants or cooing the latest soft milk folk pain to peace. They were singing America the Beautiful, following the deep-voiced man of God presiding over the service, 31-year-old Richard John Newhouse. He was the pastor at St. John the Evangelist, the thriving hosting the event. He was also one of the founders of a leading anti-war group, clergy and lay concerned about Vietnam, and a fast-rising intellectual and activist on the American left. But this trajectory would never be finally or fully his trajectory. The song he wanted his fellow anti-war activists to sing at St. John the Evangelist indicated as much. As he would later recount, his suggestion was met with silence, even shock. Asking this particular audience to sing that particular song was basically like asking Billy Graham and Bob Hope to sing communist anthems at an Honor America rally. Newhouse, however, was convinced prayer and protest could be joined to patriotism. In fact, at difficult and fraught moments in American public life, they had to be whether to rescue love of country from war-making scoundrels and other ugly conservatives, or to remind myopic pacifists and other sweet, dreamy liberals that they were citizens called by God and by history to love and help redeem their troubled nation, not hate it and abandon it to its hateful elements. And so this was why, as far as he was concerned, nothing less than America the Beautiful had to sound forth in the church while all the young men said no to what their country was doing in Vietnam. Pastor Newhouse preached to the hazy protesters in the hazy pews that the song did not describe the United States as it was. He told them it described the United States they all hoped for, the nation they hoped would come into existence because of the very acts of conscientious objection that they were committing together in the church that night. Provocative, contrarian, challenging, persuasive, Newhouse won them over. What came of it, as New York TV news audiences and newspaper readers learned the next day, and as Newhouse would observe in one of his many books, was, quote, the lustiest and most heartfelt rendition of America the Beautiful I have ever heard. Almost 30 years later, amid all the cheering and applause, it was everything Father Richard John Newhouse could do to stop his admiring audience from belting out songs like America the Beautiful. He was in Washington to speak at the annual Road to Victory Convention in September 1994, two months before the midterm elections. 
The event was sponsored by the Christian Coalition, a political operation dedicated to securing conservative Christian voters from the Republican Party by persuading them to put their electoral trust in the GOP. The 3,000 in attendance were certainly open to the proposition. As far as many conservative Christians in America were concerned, their beloved and God-blessed nation was now run by godless, decadent liberals and, unsurprisingly, going to hell. Public schools taught lefty nonsense and anti-American garbage in place of sound values and strong traditions. Popular culture was a sex-encrusted cesspool. You could abort your unborn child and claim it as a constitutional right more easily than you could quote the Bible at a public meeting or put up a creche at City Hall. Something had to be done about all of this, namely, get the right kind of people elected to public office. And if you were a delegate at a Christian coalition conference, the right kind of people were Republicans. The coming election, however, would not be easy. The attendees needed encouragement, even blessings for their effort to turn out fellow churchgoers on election day. And who better to do that than the author of the national bestseller, The Naked Public Square, Religion and Democracy in America? Who better than Father Richard John Newhouse to praise and inspire the God and GOP-loving crowd? He did not deliver the goods they might have been expecting. Instead, he warned his audience, Quote, we can confuse our Christian hope with political success. Furthermore, there is a danger that we confuse our political policy judgments with the judgments of God. And the crowd went wild. It went wild to his dismay, as he would observe in one of his magazine columns. Here he was challenging his listeners to recognize that the call of faith could not be collapsed into an electoral campaign, that the dictates of the Bible were far greater than any party platform. And yet they were not really listening to his words. They were merely enthusiastically responding to his presence. Don't worry, you're not late at all. <laughs> Don't worry. I think I went the same trip. <laughs> I only got here 10 seconds ago. I'm a hologram. I'm not actually here right now. I'm beaming in from somewhere on Massachusetts <laughs> Avenue. They were merely enthusiastically responding to his presence. After all, this was the famously fearsome Father Newhouse, culture war extraordinaire, neoconservative Catholic priest and editor-in-chief of First Things magazine, the heroic and hilarious blade-sharp scourge of silly and soft liberals inside the churches and most everywhere else. But as much as Newhouse enjoyed the stab-and-spike vitalities of professional opinion-making, and indeed he enjoyed these, carrying out his vocation as a priest was more important than burnishing his profile as a punchy public intellectual. That was why, that September 1994 day in Washington, he challenged his convention audience to put not their trust in princes, Republican or otherwise. Following his remarks, one of his listeners approached him, someone who had in fact heard what Newhouse had said and was upset by it. As Newhouse recalled, the man was holding back tears as he confronted the very priest and commentator whose writings had inspired him to become involved as a Christian in political activity, the same priest and commentator who was now telling him to take great care as a Christian involved in politics. Reflecting on the doubly confused experience of religion in American life that he witnessed and was part of, a convention hall full of Christian Republicans, untroubled indeed energized by the seemingly mutual supports of their faith and party affiliation, and one man so suddenly troubled that he wondered if anything could be done in politics as a Christian, Newhouse would write, quote, Christian political engagement is an endlessly difficult subject. Our Lord said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, but he did not accommodate us by spelling out the details. Over 2,000 years, Christians have again and again thought they got the mix just right, only to have it blow up in their faces, and not so incidentally in the faces of others. We're always having to go back to the drawing board, which is to say, to first things. 
Even when, especially when, we are most intensely engaged in the battle, first things must be kept in mind. It is not easy, but it is imperative. It profits us nothing if we win all the political battles while losing our own souls. Richard John Newhouse's life and work attest to the endless difficulties, battles, and necessarily imperfect victories of Christian political engagement in modern American culture and politics, whether as a leading clergyman of the American left in the 1960s and 70s, or as the most prominent clergyman of the American right from the 1980s through his death in 2009. If Newhouse always understood himself foremost as a man of God, he was regarded by colleagues, collaborators, critics, friends, congregations, parishes, and the national media as, and I need to take a sip before I do this one, a theologian, an intellectual, an activist, an ecumenist, a writer, an editor, a cultural commentator, a political pundit, a political candidate, a policy expert, a religious journalist, a religious leader, a spiritual director, a spiritual father, a teacher, a pastor, and a priest. This multiplicity corresponds to the array of efforts Newhouse made over decades and in any number of contexts to bring Judeo-Christian concepts of human dignity, worth, and purpose to bear on every dimension of American public life, meaning the nation's leading sacred and secular institutions, its political, legislative, and judicial deliberations, its intellectual milieu and media landscape. For all that he attempted and accomplished, Newhouse was admired and scorned, closely followed and intensely opposed, and never but taken seriously. His efforts led to the founding and running of many coalitions, institutes, and magazines, and also to the writing and preaching of hundreds of thousands of words that variously turned on his core insights and governing beliefs about modern religious experience and about American public life itself. That the United States is an incorrigibly, if confusedly, religious nation. That democracy is the political system that best corresponds to man's God-given rights and responsibilities for himself and others. That politics is a function of culture, and culture is ultimately a function of religion. That the most important question about religion and politics is not whether religion has a role to play in politics and in broader public life, but instead what that role ought to be. That the Catholic Church is the fullest substantiation of the church that Christ founded upon the earth before his death and resurrection, and therefore the church Newhouse was called to join and to serve. That the Catholic Church is likewise the world's singularly indispensable source of moral authority, guidance, and wisdom for the right ordering of global affairs and of late Western civilization. That every Christian is first and always a citizen of what Augustine called the heavenly and eternal city of God, and that this citizenship informs how he lives in this fallen mortal world, the city of man. That God is not indifferent to the American experiment. That upon his death, Newhouse expected to meet God as an American and expected he would be asked to give an account of how he had lived out and lived up to the prophet Isaiah's hope and promise that, quote, the word shall not return void. Indeed, Newhouse measured his life and work against this biblical dictum for the better part of his 73 years, from his Canadian boyhood through his schooling in Nebraska and Texas and St. Louis, and onward from there to his life as a Lutheran pastor in Brooklyn and a Catholic priest in New York. The results of his efforts, by earthly standards at least, are attested to by the religious conversions and vocational realizations he brought about through his personal friendships and public witness, and by the outsized figures of Christian example and cultural historical influence to whom he was compared upon his death. John Henry Newman, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Reinhold Niebuhr, John Courtney Murray, Fulton Sheen, Orestes Brownson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, even Jonathan Edwards. And while a case could be made for any one of these comparisons, none finally captures fully what were Richard John Newhouse's distinctive 
and often controversial contributions to the ongoing story of conflict and renewal in post-war American culture and politics, and likewise to the greater story of conflict and renewal in post-Reformation Western Christianity. What follows in these 400-odd pages is my attempt to establish and explore those contributions. So that, in a sense, I hope should give you um, an overview of Father Newhouse and of how I decided to approach this, this book, insofar as I wanted to tell the man's story out of the first principles that he himself was very much committed to. And as a novelist myself, as a storyteller, I found in Father Newhouse's life a remarkable tale um, that was motivated first and last and always, I think, by his religious commitments. Now, does this mean that these religious commitments became complicated, fraught, seemed even contradicted sometimes by his engagement with politics and public life? Yes, absolutely. But I think we have to grant that he understood his own effort, his own vocation to public life in first principles, in theological terms and in ecclesial terms. And so for the past five years, I have spent um, my, my time working on this book. Um, and as I'm sure, I mean, it's obvious to everyone here, a Sri Lankan Canadian novelist who lives in Toronto is the natural pick for a biographer <laughs> of Richard John Newhouse. So I thought I would just skip the first question I usually get at these events and simply explain how this book came about and then you know, sort of go from there. Because in some ways, um, my own connection to Father Newhouse, I think, would be one that many of you in this, in this audience would have. And it was, of course, to him as a reader of his work. Um, if we go back, let's say, a few years, I'm a graduate student at this point, going to, going to school in Boston. And I have a cradle Catholicism that I grew up with in, in a sm uh, small town just outside of Toronto. My mother kisses her rosary beads and puts them under her pillow every night. That was my Catholicism. And then I had a lot of intellectual interests. So by, I don't know, by the year 2000, I'm running a PhD on William Faulkner and globalization theory. And to my mind, the life of faith and the life of the mind had nothing to do with each other. How could they? Rose ran to the pillow at night, globalization theory and high modern American fiction. It doesn't make any sense to me. I came home one, um, one summer and I was chatting with, uh, with a friend of mine whose uncle was a, um, a seminary professor. And he was, he, had, you know, he was a literary guy, he had some interest in what I was doing. And he said, he said, what are you writing your PhD on? I said, oh, I'm doing this PhD on Faulkner and globalization theory. And he said, why would you devote your life to a drunk? And <laughs> I mean, I, I, I didn't really have a very good answer back to him other than I like long sentences. And um, so he then said, you shouldn't be reading globalization theory here. You should be reading this. And he gave me a copy of First Things Magazine. And that, for me, was a, uh, a personal terms, a very remarkable, a remarkable moment in my life because in reading First Things, what did I realize? The life of the mind and the life of faith didn't have to be radically different categories of human experience. That, in fact, a truer account of human experience recognizes that these are fully linked together, are fused together in wonderful ways. And so I began reading First Things as a graduate student um, and was very, uh, very taken with, with basically the fact that you could take God seriously and then also be a cosmopolitan-minded person who cared about politics, economics, culture, and it could work. It made sense. Uh, eventually, 
I wrote a I wrote a piece for first things, and I wrote a little bit for them thereafter. And and so I'll skip the second question. I met Father Newhouse uh, at his parish, Immaculate Conception, in New York, and I think this is probably a very typical Father Newhouse encounter. In that uh, I went went to mass, and then after mass I saw him, and I went, Father Newhouse, you know, I introduced myself, and I said, uh, you know, I just written this piece for your magazine. And I was, you know, I was a young graduate student at this point, and he was incredibly impressed with me. You got into the pages of First Things Mag. You, you are just a graduate. Randy, you have no idea how many people want to get into the pages of First Things Mag. And so it went like this. At first, he was really, I was really great. Father Newhouse is praising me. And then very subtly, but very obviously, the praise went from me to him. <laughs> and then it became this kind of compliment that he found me and how impressive it is that First Things does this. And then he kind of just started talking about how great First Things was. <laughs> and then at the end, he kind of remembered I was standing there and was, well, keep on writing. And then he just walked away. <laughs> and so, uh, so over the years then, I, um, I continued to write. I became an academic. I became a novelist. I'm living in Toronto. And... Father Newhouse dies, as I'm sure many of you know, in January 2009. And shortly thereafter, I wrote a piece about him for a Canadian magazine called The Walrus, kind of like a, a Harper's New Yorker sort of thing in Toronto. And the premise of the, of the piece was as follows. Here's the most influential Canadian-born intellectual in American life in the past 50 years that none of you have ever heard of. Because he didn't have a, a strong presence in Canada beyond kind of a first things crowd, which would be relatively small in Canada, certainly compared to the U.S., I wrote that. That was the end. And, you know, I was into, you're a professor, you've got to be, do professor work. And so I was confronted with the reality of having to write a second academic book, you know, representations of reality and post-representation culture or something like this. It was not exciting me at all. And then a light bulb went off and I thought, Father Newhouse, now this is an interesting story. I wonder if anyone's doing it. So we have to jump out of the story for one moment. In 2004, I got married to this beautiful woman who's right now at home with four small girls, all of whom have colds while we're sitting here. I know, me too, but what are you going to do? So she's a, And she went to school with a, a young woman named Gwyneth Weigel, whose mother and brother are sitting right over there, in fact. And um, so as a result of this, and by sheer coincidence, I met George Weigel, who, as I'm sure many of you know, esteemed, uh, esteemed Catholic intellectual, papal biographer, and of course, a very close friend of Father Newhouse. And so I wrote him an email. I just said, is anybody doing this? And he said, he said, no, the authorial coast is clear. And it just went from there. And so I've spent the past five years researching this book. And it's taken me from uh, small town Canada, Pembroke, Ontario, through to rural Texas, Rome, obviously New York, uh, Washington. And the book is sort of the, the outcome of all of this. And so I thought maybe if, um, if it made sense to you, I could just give you a sense of not simply the Father Newhouse that all of you know, which would be the Father Newhouse of First Things magazine, but instead how we got there. So if this makes sense, perhaps in the next 10 or 15 minutes, I could just say a little bit about how Richard John Newhouse became Father Newhouse. And then I'll read one more brief passage related to Washington, and then happily I'll, um, I'll take the floor for, for questions, or I'll offer the floor for, for questions, and then um, I'll pay all your late babysitters, if any of you have late babysitters, because of the traffic. Because you're all going to buy 14 copies of the book. So I'll use that ro those royalties to pay off your babysitters. How's that sound? So as I said, Father Newhouse was born in Pembroke, Ontario. Pembroke, Ontario is a small town 
uh, outside of Ottawa. It's in the Ottawa Valley. He was born there uh, May 1936, the seventh of eight children to uh, a couple, Clem and Ella Newhouse. Clem Newhouse, 6'5", 250 pounds, big, imposing Lutheran minister who had a rather um, authoritarian presence, I guess you could say, in this little community of Pembroke, Ontario. Um, his nickname around town was Pope Newhouse, which would be a, a rather loaded nickname for a Missouri Synod pastor, as you can imagine. And when I went to Pembroke to interview people who knew Newhouse, grew up with him, um, we're talking now, this is 50 years later, people were still a little nervous to talk about, about Pastor Newhouse. One guy refused to criticize him because he, was, he almost felt like he was still going to get in trouble for it. So this man had an imposing presence in this small town and indeed in this large family with little Dickie, as he was then known, number seven. His, ba- his baby sister, Johanna, remembers the earliest thing that little Dickie wanted to do when he was a little boy. What was it? He wanted to play church. I mean, what does that tell us about a vocation, right? When he was four years old, he would set up a, um, he would set up a dining room chair and he would preach from the chair to his baby sister and her dolls. And this was a bit of a problem, as you can imagine, in the pastor's home. People coming to talk to the pastor. There's this kid preaching to these dolls. So he sent out back. And so instead he performed funerals and dog weddings for uh, funerals for like, for like baby mice and things and honeybees. And he had this kind of idyllic, idyllic childhood in, uh, in small town Canada, right around the, the, the time of the, the Second World War. And from there, as he grew older, he grew more rebellious and more contrarian. And he was, I think, in his sort of teenage years, simultaneously motivated by a deep love of God and church and by a deep love of making trouble. And I think these two tracks intersected in many ways for the rest of his life. Um, By the age of 12, 13, his parents, not really knowing what else to do, um, they sent him off to Nebraska to a, a Lutheran boarding school in Nebraska, Concordia and uh, Concordia Seward, it was called. Uh, he lasted there one year. Uh, but what's amazing about that year, before we get to the reason why he only lasted there one year, was again years later, one of his classmates from this this was a, a pre. It's like, a, like a, an extended high school, basically. And um, one of his fellow boarding school students, decades later, wrote him a letter quoting to him the sermons he would preach on Saturday mornings in the pool hall to the other guys. So they had this practice on Saturday mornings in this place of just they would get together, somebody would read something from a, a religious book, some sort of devotional thing. And Newhouse marked himself out because he would just get up and preach as a 13, 14-year-old to other teenagers. And... What's amazing to me is that this man, this pastor, could quote Newhouse chapter and verse decades later. So you have a sense that he had a charisma to him from a young age. Now, this charisma, as I said, was for God and for trouble. He was also famous on campus for organizing keg parties. And then he finally led a panty raid. And it was at this point that he really did get in, uh, in, in big trouble, as you could imagine. Uh, panty raids don't really go over very well at the Lutheran boarding schools in, in 1950s Nebraska. Uh, he was confined to, it, to his quarters, and he had a religious experience, actually, a conversion experience as a result, because a teacher came up to him and basically said, God is disappointed in you. Like, look at the gifts you have been given. 
look what you're doing with these gifts. You're squandering in a sense. And he had a conversion experience, um, but that conversion experience wasn't good enough for the Nebraska authorities. And he was invited not to return to school, as we say in euphemistic terms. He went from there to Texas. This is, I think, uh, a key a key sense of how how much Father Newhouse needed a vocation. So he's, now he's a teenager living in Texas. He's living with some relatives down in Cisco, tiny town where Conrad Hilton originated. He never went to high school. He just didn't bother to enroll. And instead, he discovered that his kind of cousin, uncle, kind of distant relative uh, was a World War II vet who had come back from Germany with a horde of Nazi war memorabilia, daggers and shotguns and the like. And so Newhouse would spend his days throwing these daggers against the wall, just sort of killing time like this. And then he would get the shotgun and he persuaded his friend to drive them around the Texas Badlands and he would be standing there with this Nazi shotgun shooting jackrabbits. This was how he spent his days. At night, he couldn't stop talking about God, politics, ideas, arguing incessantly with um, both his roommate, who had a certain patience for this, but not much, and then also with the local pastor. So imagine this, right? You're this kind of small town Texas pastor, Lutheran pastor in Cisco. You're a country guy just looking to serve a country pastor. And you've got this guy, this, this kid from Canada, asking abstruse theological questions of you on a regular basis. So the pastor and Newhouse's roommate agreed, we've got to do something with this kid. We can't just let him kind of waste his time around here in Texas running gas stations and getting in trouble. He, he, he ran a gas station for a little while, too, incidentally. Um, so they sent him to Concordia Austin, which is a Lutheran junior college. Uh, basically, late high school, so it was the, uh, the gymnasium model from Germany. Basically, six years of schooling, kind of beginning grade 11-ish, going through to the end of college. He goes, gets there, there's two lineups, high school, college. He goes into the college lineup. Why would you go to high school when you could go to college instead? He got up to the front. They asked him for his high school diploma. He said something like, you know, I sincerely hope you find it someday, and then just walked into college, and off he went and had a, uh, had a, a good time at that college. Again, troublemaker who loved God, troublemaker who loved God, a God-loving troublemaker, a lot of, a lot of drama around that. Uh, but he finally discovered the more genuine vocation that, that he was called to, and he enrolled from there in a seminary, Concordia Seminary. And here's where I think the the more substantial story of Father Newhouse and how he came into his vocation, indeed into his Catholicism, really takes root. Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, the 1950s, this was the, quote, theoretical seminary in the Missouri Synod, and this was a thriving place in the 1950s. It was already riven, often this is the case, alas, I think, with Lutheranism, it was already kind of riven with internal divisions, a lot of kind of argument this is Echt Lutheranism. No, this is, I, I'm slightly German, so I can use the Echt with some authority, I think. Uh, two German clerks went to Sri Lanka in the 1800s. One of them met a girl. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> anyway, so he's there in the 1950s, and he comes under the tutelage of a man named Arthur C. Peepcorn, who was a major, major figure for Newhouse. He was um, a Lutheran theologian, pastor, who subscribed to a view of Lutheranism, of Lutheranism itself, as a reform movement internal to the Universal Catholic Church. That the Reformation was never meant to be final, but was meant to allow a space to then reunite. 
Newhouse was very taken with this model of Lutheranism and also with the more ecclesial structures that Father Peepcorn, who called himself Father Peepcorn, uh, including right down to a Roman collar, that he adopted and espoused. And so Newhouse was very taken with this model. He was simultaneously, though, also drawn to a homiletics professor named Richard Kammerer, who really thought the whole point of of, uh, of your life as a minister is to get out there, engage the people, transform them with the gospel, transform them with their pre- with your preaching. And so these two together informed Newhouse's formation, um, and he then finds himself drawn to city ministry. So when you're a Lutheran, um, when you're a, a Lutheran seminarian, you're, you're sent off on a, uh, often is the case, of course, with Catholic priests as well, for a, you know, an internship year, basically. And so he spent one summer in Detroit, at a, an urban at an urban parish in Detroit, and he realized something there. He realized on Sunday mornings at about eleven o'clock, about ten fifty-five, right before the eleven o'clock service, the ushers at this congregation would line the steps and wait there. He didn't know why this was. And then, if a black congregant came up to go to church, the ushers would very discreetly give them money so they would go to a black church. And this was transformative for Newhouse to see this kind of, I mean, this is, this is white guilt at, at its worst in many ways, right? We want you to go to church, just don't sit beside us, you know? And this is Newhouse experiencing in direct autobiographical terms uh, Martin Luther King's most famous statement, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. So he saw this, and I think this really did um, inspire him to an urban ministry and to a Lutheranism that saw itself in kind of the best sense of liberalism itself, which is to say, to work for the defense of those who cannot defend themselves. And in the 1960s, for Father Newhouse, as he answered a call to join a a very poor congregation in Brooklyn shortly after seminary, this became his sort of great life's work. now we're in early 1960s, and he's a pastor at St. John the Evangelist in the um, what we now think of as sort of high hipster Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. When I went there to look at to look at the uh, to do a little bit of research, I bought a peanut butter sandwich that cost eight dollars. I mean, it was incre- it was an incredibly cool sandwich, and the person who served it to me was far cooler than I ever will be. But eight bucks for a peanut butter sandwich? I don't know. Anyway, there was no eight dollar sandwiches in Newhouse's day. He joins this congregation in 1961, and he really finds, I think, there the fullness of urban ministry, right, where a strong and thriving uh, liturgical life was absolutely at the heart of that church, but it was a, a church that spread out into a failed community. It was a, a straightforward victim of what we would now call white flight, and so it was really just an impoverished place no social services to speak of, really, a major housing project directly across the street from the, um, from the church itself. And so Newhouse gathered together a bunch of young Lutherans from local colleges and created a kind of community of urban ministers together, some of whom to this day remain working at that church. And even though to this day, I suspect, they probably wouldn't agree with Father Newhouse politically, indeed even <laughs> theological terms, when I met them, they were they were straightforward in saying he because of him I am here. I found my vocation because he drew me into urban ministry like this, and so that was his life sort of in the 1960s. This church was so poor, it couldn't give him a salary, 
So for his first year, he worked overnight as a hospital chaplain at Kings County, a big major hospital in New York at that point. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that, I think, a little later. Let's move ahead now. So in the 1960s, we know that Father Newhouse, through his interest in civil rights, his work in the black church, um, he becomes far more politically engaged. Then he becomes very much engaged with the anti-war movement. And he discovers that there can be people of faith who want to protest the war in Vietnam is unjust, and there was no context for them to do so. You're a radical leftist, you're a, you're a campus activist. There was no way for, for religiously minded people to, to, to pursue this form of protest. So he founded something called Clergy and Lady Concerned Again about the war in Vietnam alongside Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish leader, uh, the Berrigan brothers, and others. And this became the way that he really emerged on the national scene. Um, by the early 70s, he is already finding himself sort of at odds with the left, which was never finally his place, I would say just as the right never finally was his place in political terms. Um, and by the mid-1970s, now he's a, a full-on intellectual, a prodigious writer, an activist, an organizer. And a couple of important events happen in the early to mid-70s that I think will get us to the question that people inevitably have. Why the turn? How did he turn? Right? How do we understand his move from left to right, his move from Lutheran to Catholic? And it's not as straightforward as we would think. I would argue it has nothing to do with Roe v. Wade in the period in which it happened. Because in 73, you absolutely could be a fully respectable liberal and fully pro-life. It's only by the 80s that these alignments change and become far more rigid, and then certainly into the 1990s. Instead, it was two things. It was an event that happened in 1975. Um, the war in Vietnam is over. There's the communist government now in Hanoi. And one of, their, one of their very first measures was to begin imprisoning religious minorities. Newhouse sees this. He goes to speak to his friends on the left, and he says, basically, this is ridiculous. This is not what we were protesting about. Look what's happening. We need to go bang on some doors at the UN. We need to publish a letter in the Times. We need to do something. And they wouldn't. He couldn't find people on the left willing to publicly criticize a Marxist government for fear of giving sort of cover to the, to the enemy, as it were, right? Meaning the American government. And this, for him, was shocking. What does this expose that for his friends on the left, their political and ideological commitments trump their higher order commitments to the inherent dignity of the human person. And that was a big shift. The other is the, something called the Hartford Statement, little known now but significant at the time. Uh, it was a big event in 1975 where Newhouse declares, uh, in collaboration with a few others, a series of notable failings on the part of mainline Protestantism, basically an <coughs> abandonment of continuity with the past and abandonment of orthodox liturgy, orthodox practice for a kind of social service, neophiliac approach to the faith. Very controversial when it came out. But it was also Newhouse really marking himself out uh, as a conservative in theological and ecclesial terms. I would argue he always was. But the political and ideological alignments that came out of that changed as American life changed. Late 1970s, he becomes far more interested in anti-communism. He becomes incredibly interested in this Polish guy named John Paul II, who seems to have this kind of magnetic presence in the world and is making a case for, again, not if, but how religion matters to how we live and understand ourselves and our relation to each other. And 
Father Newhouse, Pastor Newhouse, begins then to write very much about John Paul II in an American context, starting really in the late 70s, and also more generally about the place of religion in American public life. He did this for decades, but it really tripped a wire in 1984 with a book we all know, The Naked Public Square. Why did that book work out in a way that all of his books to that point really didn't? It was timing, and it was the terms. It's 1984. It's Reagan's re-election. The moral majority, Jerry Falwell, who figured noticeably in the, in the 1980 election, they're back in the news again, and everyone is wondering, is this what religion looks like in American public life? Well, we don't want anything to do with religion in American public life then. And Newhouse finds exactly the right moment to say, basically, religion matters in American public life. Secular progressives, you can't bar it, but this isn't what it should look like either. And so the naked public square, with that very provocative phrasing, becomes his, frankly, first-person account for how religion should matter in public life. And this leads to what he would always refer to then as a publicly available philosophy for the right ordering of American life. We can draw on our deepest convictions and beliefs, practices and traditions, but in a pluralist democracy, we have to make our case in terms that finally are publicly available and are not finally ordered to and by our faith commitments. In other words, you agree with me not because of whether you believe what I believe or not, but because of the inherent logic and truth of the position. And to get to that inherent logic and truth, Newhouse saw religion, saw really the Judeo-Christian tradition as the way ahead. So from the 1984 onward, I suspect the story is better known by many of you. Um, he becomes a, a figure of national prominence. By the late 1980s, it's very clear that he has this great interest in, in Catholicism. He writes this book called The Catholic Moment, which, um, which led Peter Steinfeld in the New York Times to basically write, what's this Lutheran pastor doing writing constantly about the Catholic Church? Right? He clearly was, was drawn to the church in lots of different ways. He converts in 1990. Um, by way of his very close relationship to John Cardinal O'Connor. In 1991, he is a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. And then from the 1990s forward, he becomes the father of Newhouse, I think we all probably know, working in close collaboration um, with George Weigel, with Michael Novak, and others to become, in many ways, uh, John Paul II's, if not definitive, certainly most newsworthy interpreters in American public life. Um, and Meanwhile, creating First Things Magazine, this outlet for religiously serious intellectual thought about any number of matters in public life, going all the way through then to the late 1990s. By the end of the 90s, this guy named Carl Rove writes him a letter saying, hey, could you come talk to my, my, my boss? He's this governor in Texas. <coughs> Father Newhouse goes down there and meets up with Governor Bush, and they have a very good, a very good chat. And <coughs> what comes out of that, as I'm sure you all know, would be Father Newhouse providing George W. Bush with a series of formulations that would articulate public policy positions, specifically around beginning and end of life matters, that would be appealing to conservative Catholic voters, who otherwise might not see a whole lot of common cause, let's say, with a born-again evangelical from Connecticut slash Texas. And so it seemed, you know, it seemed to work. Again, Father Newhouse is chutzpah. What does he do? He sends Bush a series of issues of First Things magazine to kind of help along his thinking. Now, if you think that's something, he did the same thing with Cardinal Ratzinger. He did the same thing with John Paul II. He would send them issues of First Things, specifically saying, you may want to read this article. This article might help your thinking on this matter. I mean, he really did have a kind of a remarkable chutzpah in that sense. So by the 2000s then, 
he is uh, a national figure. He has um, uh, kind of a, a network of connections in New York, in Washington, in Rome, and he really then becomes uh, a figure of signal opposition. And people start to kind of wonder, who is this guy? Is this just a Republican and a Roman caller? Is he just an apologist for the Bush administration? And any series of rather harsh criticisms uh, come out. In the meantime, at times he's not helping this along with what he writes. But many of you know, I suspect, that he was best known during this period for his very sharp, very funny, often very gossipy contributions in the back pages of First Things magazine, the while we're at it section. Um, and I would say, finally, you know, that section was a great help to Father Neuhaus's fan base, but it obscured the man's greater contribution to American public life. And you can even see this late in his life. He got, at some point in his life, he kind of got tired of it. I could tell looking at the correspondence. Again, just so I could just make it clear how healthy Father Neuhaus's ego was, he had every single email he ever wrote printed and filed because someday some biographer was going to come by and read all of this. So I spent, for my sins, three weeks at the offices of First Things a few years ago going through all of these letters. And by the end of it, my hands were peeling because of all the papers I had to go through to, uh, to, to, to get a sense of the man through his, through his correspondence. Um, why he's printing email forward golf jokes, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. But, but anyway, by the, by the mid-2000s then, he has this great presence, his great prominence. Um, and then he has in 2008, late 2008, uh, a second bout of cancer. He had a first bout in early 1993 that was a near-death experience that he wrote about very beautifully in a book called As I Lay Dying. And then by 2008, um, he succumbs then to a more serious and finally decisive bout of cancer. And he dies in early January 2009. And then for the reader, he just kept on going because, of course, he'd already written a whole lot that then appeared thereafter, some very beautiful um, writing. And I thought, you know, before turning the floor to, to questions, if you have any, I might end with something that Father Newhouse wrote that you wouldn't perhaps otherwise know. But I, I want to share it because we all know the funny and sharp Father Newhouse. But that stuff's kind of date-stamped if you look at it now. I mean, how many times can you laugh at a joke about John Kerry? It, it, I mean, these days, maybe. But my point is, <laughs> my point is it, there is a date stamp to this. And then we all know Father Newhouse, the public thinker, you know, on, on philosophy, philosophy of American public life, et cetera, et cetera. But what I thought I would do is read something that would be far less known. That's from 1961. I want to end with this. Uh, it's from 1961. And this is when he is that pastor at King's, he's a hospital chaplain. So he's just gone to New York. He has this new congregation. They can't afford to pay him. So he's working 24-hour shifts in this hospital as a, as a hospital chaplain. And one night, he decided he would, um, he would write a letter to his good friend Robert Louis Wilkin. I'm sure many of you know, lives here in the city, in fact, a uh, great scholar of ancient Christianity, of early Christianity, I should say. And he wrote him a letter to basically give him a sense of what his life was like in New York in 1961. So I thought I would perhaps end with that letter and then um, happy to have some, some conversation about him. Newhouse's time at King's Hospital also revealed to him some of the difficulties that surrounded life's early moments. Witnessing these difficulties only intensified his still fresh commitment to the ministry he had taken on in becoming an inner-city pastor. This much is evident 
in a remarkable 21-page letter that Newhouse wrote Robert Louis Wilkin on his breaks during one long day at the hospital. The letter's most revealing moments occur when Newhouse returns to his pen and paper right after watching a birth. And so this is Newhouse now. I just saw baby boy Washington enter life with a cry. He does not yet know how much he will have to cry about. His mother is unmarried and does not want him. He will be turned over to the city for a life of not being wanted. This is true for more than one-third of all the hundreds of babies delivered here. I don't think his prospects are very good for finding love, happiness, joy, purpose. I am not depressed, only filled with wonder. Wonder at the glory and tragedy of life in this city. In a little while, I will drive home and can count on being struck again by the New York skyline, a never-failing object of adoration. The city and potential of the civilization it represents, to this I am religiously committed. And to the ways of the God who brought it into being, what is man that you keep him in mind? Little baby boy Washington, fear not, he has redeemed you. He has called you by the name you do not yet have. You are his. I cannot guarantee you that this is true. It may be a pious illusion, but it is better than what is called the truth by men but just must be illusion. You are not alone. Nowhere is Richard John Newhouse's sense of self and world circa 1961 more evident than in this letter to Wilkin, in no small part because the letter's purpose is as much about letting his friend know about his new life in New York as it is a pretext for making sense of that very life himself. And to do that is to make sense of life for the people around him, including for a newborn child whose future, like those of many others, seems bleak from the moment of birth. Indeed, it did by every measure and truth devised by men alone, and so would be, but for God's redemptive claim upon every human life, baby boy Washington's included. Why does Newhouse directly address this child in a letter to Wilkin? Is this a rhetorical flourish? After all, there is no denying the highly literary quality of the writing, the intensification of feeling and drama made possible by this sudden switch to addressing a baby he would never see again. No. Ultimately, Newhouse is not performing here for his friend. He is not psychologically working through the events of a difficult day at work, or even giving his literary muscles a workout otherwise denied by his consuming duties as a full-time pastor and part-time hospital chaplain. By the end of this letter, Newhouse is praying. He is praying for this child, that the child may know he is not alone, and he is praying for others like him. And he is praying to God with praise, thanksgiving, and petition, all for having been given a demanding new ministry marked by urban glories and tragedies that fill him with wonder and only confirm his commitment to doing God's work in the world. <coughs> this was a world whose intensifying conflicts would soon command much more of his time and energy, his words, and his prayers. Thank you. I was going to ask about. Sorry, I was going to ask about his humor, but you made me feel a little guilty now. Uh, <laughs> a very Catholic Lenten moment. Then. Good, good. I did. I haven't read the book yet. I, the captions, though, to the photos are hilarious. Did you write? The, yeah, I did. I did. They're wonderful. Um, but let me ask more. A slightly more serious subject. Father New has a celibate vocation, which mm -hmm. started well before he was a Catholic. Yeah. Where does that come from? Is Father Peeps involved? Is there yeah, it, he is, in fact. So when, when Father Newhouse was in seminary, um, Father Peepcorn, his, his, this kind of very consequential teacher for him, really impressed upon both Newhouse and Robert Louis Wilkin 
the importance of celibacy, not as a requirement, of course, but as a choice, but as a choice that could lead to a greater freedom to do God's work in the world. And Newhouse was very taken with this model. And so was Wilkin, or so Newhouse thought. And then a few years later, he's in Chicago, and Wilkin comes over to meet up with him. He's in a, for, um, for dinner. He's got this girl named Carol with him. And Newhouse was not pleased. And he actually asked Wilkin to leave the table so he could have a talk with Carol about this. And he wanted to let Carol know that, you know, this is not where Robert's lights are, is how he put it to her, apparently. And in fact, I think that probably was where Robert's lights were, but clearly not, not Richard's. And so his best friend and his best friend's wife, one version, I mean, he got along pretty well with you, Mrs. Weigel, but you know, the other, the other one, I don't think he, he got along very well with the rest of his life. But that celibacy was for him, uh, it started there. Uh, he dated vaguely someone in the 1960s, a woman, and it didn't work out, but he never really had much more to say about that. And then there's this kind of semi-urban legend that he dated Joan Baez in the 60s because the two of them would be at protest rallies together, and he would he would speak, and she would play, and then they would go for coffee. You know, I reached out to Mrs. to Miss Baez, but she didn't reply to my request to confirm or deny this, so that's as much as I can say. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for what you've shared about him. I, I, I'm among those who sort of stumbled into first things some years ago, mm-hmm. and partly because it was elegantly designed. Yeah. Just it was, it was, uh, it wasn't flashy. It, it was serious. Much has been made in recent reviews of your book about uh, the whole question of Father Newhouse's. Um, Transition to and the accusation being levied at him that he sort of in service to Republicans yes. that he had conformed his set of beliefs or at least he was in a process of negotiating those beliefs in service to political agendas mm-hmm. and I guess from from your study of him mm-hmm. the importance he places on being in the public square does he ever speak or write or do you deduce a sense of his awareness of the temptation of power over over principle yes uh, no, a very good question uh, I would I would quote because it makes geographic sense I would quote the great Methodist theologian Stanley Hauerwas who when I asked him about Richard and this and that he said you know when it came to this very question of father Newhouse and politics the way the way Hauerwas puts it is he said I always knew that when it came down to it, if Richard had to decide between Jesus and Washington, he would pick Jesus, but he would just take a little longer than I would, <laughs> is the way he put it. Um, but to the, you know, to the question that the reviews are bringing up, I, I would argue, in response to those, to those reviews, that if you only adopt a political and ideological frame for understanding Father Newhouse, and you deny the significance of the theological and ecclesial imperatives behind his life and work, they're right. Absolutely. No denying that. But that's a pretty cramped version of the man, I think. And it's harder, I think, to deal with theology and ecclesiology as these were informing his political activities and creating, I think, a certain sort of distancing. So it's not without design that I begin the book with that preface, with him basically tearing a strip off people at the, at the Christian Coalition event in 1994 Washington, right? You're fools if you think that voting Republican is going to solve everything. Um, I think, though, you know, he, the other thing, and this is in the book, 
in early 2001, after Bush is elected, Newhouse writes him a detailed letter, and it's basically a warning. It's a very blunt letter coming from a priest to a president, frankly, but it basically is, don't think that because we helped get you in and we know you're pro-life, that that's going to be enough for us. We will walk. We're not going to vote Democrat, but we're not going to support you unless we see evidence that your pro-life commitments lead to some some measure of of a greater openness and respect for life in, in American in American politics. Um, did he did he trip the line sometimes? Absolutely. You know, there would be times where you would see he's very good in the media. You know, he would be kind of ripping on Democrats. He'd be ripping on liberal bishops for offering cover to the Democrats, and then he would just be slaying the Democrats right afterwards himself. So he did mix it up a lot, uh, but I don't think finally, I don't think finally to the um, to the destruction of his more theological and ecclesial commitments. Is there a hand over here? My question is actually sort of similar to that, but it. Uh as it pertains particularly to the Iraq War, I'm sure yeah. you've gotten this question. Um, that you know the the Christian coalition anecdote is interesting. Um, you know this kind of call for a space outside of politics or, or the ability to dissent outside of politics. But the accusation is that uh, he was actually involved in suppressing that to a certain degree at first things leading up to the second Iraq invasion. What do you make of that? You mean the Damon Linker, the Damon Linker account of everything? Yeah. So I think the. I mean, you're bringing up, I think, a couple of a couple of interesting points there. The one would be Father Newhouse very clearly ran first things, right? I mean, George Weigel famously says, you know, we pretended to give him advice and he pretended to take it from us. <laughs> so it was clear in the early 2000s when Damon Linker kind of joins the magazine shortly after 9-11 that they have significant differences on foreign policy. But this was Father Newhouse's magazine, and it was going to run pieces that allowed uh, arguments to be made out of just war theory in defense of the war in Iraq. I think, I think suppression is maybe a little too far, but it was clear that he decided in some ways to you know, put his thumb down on that side of the scale. Uh, you, you, know, you could argue, and there's people that have pointed this out in reviews of the book, that he himself, if you read him closely, and sometimes he can be very rhetorically difficult to get through, he himself was hedging more than anything else uh, at times. I would say that instead what he did was he went after the critics of the Bush administration's war in Iraq rather than sort of advancing the war in Iraq directly himself. He created a platform for others. But at the level of suppression, no. I mean, what you're really bringing up, I think, though, is what I would point to as one of maybe one of the more mistaken moments in his life, which was the the, the Damon-Linker relationship and, and his inability to kind of recognize that this probably wasn't someone you wanted to be editing your magazine. And I think, you know, to, to Damon Linker's credit, and I've interviewed him about this, you know, he, he said, and I, I believe him from the way he was explaining it to me, he really tried to get this across, that they were not on the same page. And Father Newhouse would, oh, Damon, no, 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 you know, and kind of denied it or ignored it until finally it leads to, uh, you know, this finally unpersuasive book, The Theocons, which comes out. In uh, 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Of all the research you've done, of all the research you've done on Father Newhouse, how did you decide what information to put in, what information not to put in, and also is there are there parts of his life that are more obscure than others, or parts that you didn't want to include in the book? Mm. Very good question. Um, 
Well, it's known that he had a he kept a personal diary his whole life that was upon his at his wishes burned upon his uh, upon his death. So that private part of his life I self-evidently had no access to. Um, I would also say it's hard to access the spiritual life of anyone when you're writing a biography. So I could only go on what was written about him and what was said about him. But in terms of what I decided to put in uh, or take out, really that's where my, I think probably my my combined formation as a scholar of American literature and culture and politics and my novel, my, my life as a novelist meant that I wanted to tell a good story. And I wanted to tell a good story with these as my kind of um, criteria. Is it, and this is how I, I kind of put it, is this story, do I get them right? Is the story responsibly told? And is it enjoyable to read? And what I've noticed in terms of the review so far is that while people are very divided about Father Newhouse, I've been very gratified that people see this as a comprehensive and responsible account of his life. That's enjoyable to read. Um, let's, I mean, I'll be frank, there's not going to be 14 different biographies of Richard John Newhouse. So this doesn't have to be an ideological, you know, we're going to have competing Pope Francis. We already do have Pope, competing Pope Francis biographies. This is it. So I really did want to create a kind of authoritative singular account that others can then draw on in making their own sort of responses to him. Yes, at the back. Then. Uh, I only heard... I only heard uh, Neuhaus speak once. Mm -hmm. It was a venue, something like this, in New York City. But uh, I just wanted to say, I was I was so impressed the way he spoke. Uh, the the sentences, complex sentences, just rolled out. Yes. Uh, and uh, they, they always landed right. The syntax never failed, you know. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, I think a large part of that comes out of his life as a preacher. You know, and I think he, I mean, he had that kind of beautiful baritone voice and he had a certain cadence to the way he spoke so that there was a rhythm to his prose uh, that when you heard it, it really was, it really was lovely. I agree. Father, you had a, a question? I, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for writing the biography. I consider one of the greatest praises I received uh, in my life was when he called me friend mm. during his time when he would visit Washington, D.C., it's an amazing thing. You know, you look back to the Jesuits, the canonized martyrs uh, uh, here in the East, or Junipero Serra and the Franciscan missionaries in the West, and you think of all the tens of thousands of priests that have served in what is now the United States, and most of us are known only to God in the end, but um, Richard is one that deserves to be remembered and uh, to uh, for his memory to be cherished. Um, and I'm glad that this biography will, will serve to do that. My question is, uh, if you talk for a moment about the relationship between he and Cardinal Newman, you were talking about the election in 1984, which of course, I'm sorry, not Cardinal Newman, uh, Cardinal O'Connor. Um, <laughs> my my, my pseudo-historical <laughs> fantasy novel version of the... Of no, it's the statue of Cardinal Newman that... Yeah, uh, that watching over. Um, the, the relationship between Father and Cardinal O'Connor. Yes. You spoke of the election in 84 where uh, Cardinal O'Connor played a, a very large role. And I'm wondering, uh, in your research, what influence Cardinal O'Connor and... Uh, a Congresswoman Ferraro's um, engagements in the public square might have had on Father Newhouse, and also a little bit about their personal relationship that led to his being ordained for the Archdiocese of New York. Well, I think there was an immediate and very intense interest there, and it came from um, 
that moment when when then B- Bishop O'Connor of Scranton was announced as the new cardinal Ar- or the new Archbishop of New York, and shortly thereafter, um, O'Connor made some references to abortion and, and created analogies to the Holocaust, as you could imagine. And Newhouse is following this, and what does he see? He sees someone who's clearly committed to a pro-life position, clearly committed, despite the controversy that'll come of the way he's going to put it, but he's going to put it in a way that's going to make some news, and he probably needs some help when he gets to Manhattan. So Newhouse wrote to him early and basically said, when you get here, let me help you, you know? And he, almost like, a, almost like a coming out party, he took him all over New York to meet people, he arranged meetings for him. This is really important, um, as a, as a, just as a one element. I mean, about Ferraro, O'Connor, I mean, that's really in the book. If you read the, the chapter on the Naked Public Square, you'll see how, how I kind of unpack that. But what, for me, is more stunning is that Newhouse arranged for a meeting for New York media and intellectuals to meet Cardinal, uh, sorry, Archbishop O'Connor. Susan Sontag... Tom Brokaw, Bob Silvers, who runs the New York Review of Books. I don't know who actually ended up showing up, but to me what's amazing about Newhouse was his presumption that all of these people should care about the new Archbishop of New York. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but when, whenever it is, alas, that Cardinal Dolan passes and we have a new Archbishop of New York, you're not going to have the New York Review of Books having a cocktail party with him to learn who the new guy is, right? But Newhouse could do that. He could presume that. And through his charisma and his connections, he can make it happen. And that matters because what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that religion, religiously minded people, matter in American life beyond their immediate confessions. And that was, I think, the really important contact point between the two of them. Obviously, their shared pro-life commitments, their gregariousness, their, their willingness to kind of mix it up. They, neither, of them, neither of them had a problem getting in front of a microphone. So I think they had a great closeness that way. And when um, when Card- then Cardinal O'Connor died, uh, if you look, I quote it in the book, but Newhouse wrote very movingly about this, and you really did see a kind of spiritual father there. I think for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yes. Other questions? What was his uh, disagreement with uh, Michael Novak in the 1970s? <laughs> It was a disagreement that, uh, that George Weigel solved with pizza, according to George. But the, the two of them had a disagreement because Novak in 1973 or something like this wrote this book called The Rise of the Unmeltable Ethnics, which was a, a kind of uh, a romantic defense of kind of blood and soil identity, you know, church life, family life, ethnic life, immigrant life. And Newhouse saw this as kind of um, a romantic, but finally sectarian account of what it means to be a, a citizen of the United States. And so in the pages of Worldview magazine, a magazine he was then writing for, he wrote a pretty sharp critique of it, uh, pretty acidic, actually. And then the two of them sparred in the pages for a while back and forth, and then they broke apart. And then at some point in the late 70s, uh, George Weigel, who had become friends with both of them independently, brought them together over bad pizza. Any other questions? No? Thank you so much for joining us this My evening. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your patience as well. Thank you.